Hi, I'm Joaquin Evans, co-senior leader of Bethel Austin. I pray that Jesus ministers to you through today's message and that you are blessed deeply. If you're encouraged, please like and subscribe so you can stay up to date with all of our weekly sermons. Enjoy the message. Okay, I love to read this declaration slide together before I preach. I just think it's great to have some intention going into the Word of God. Amen? Amen. So I want you to grab your Bibles, if that's your phone, if that's your physical Bible, just grab it and we're going to say this together, okay? I love my Bible. I believe that it is the Word of God. I believe I am who He says I am. I believe in its power to transform my life. I know that God will meet me in these pages. My heart is open to receive, and I boldly declare I will never be the same. Amen. Amen. I feel like I don't have any saliva tonight. Does that ever happen to y'all? I don't know. I apologize. I'm just going <laughs> to. Thanks. Must have been my latte I had before I got up, I'm not sure. But you all know what I'm talking about, so we're just keeping it real. All right. <sighs> Who has been here um, when I have spoken on one of the Beatitudes previously? Awesome. Okay. Well, believe it or not, we the first time I preached on the Beatitudes was seven months ago. <laughs> I know, it's the series that never ends. Um, but I don't get to preach that often, and there are eight Beatitudes. And so we kind of jumped in um, on the Beatitude of blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And I just, it was going to be a one-time sermon. I was intrigued by this word meek and what it actually meant in biblical terms and how opposite that was of what we imagine that to be in our modern Western world terms. And so I was so intrigued that I'm like, I'm going to study this and dive in and I want to speak on this. And the more I did, the more I was just like enraptured by these beatitudes. And the more I studied them, just the more I loved them. And I just realized we just need to speak on all of them. We just need to get in, study, ingest, live out these beatitudes. Amen? So we kind of started somewhere in the middle which you're welcome, A-type friends. I know that that is probably bothering you. To be honest, it bothers me. But we're just rolling with it, okay? All right, so last time I spoke, I spoke on, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And now we are circling back to the beginning. But I want to bring a little bit of context, and I want to bring a little bit of a foundation for the Beatitudes as we go into the next one, which is the first one. And it's this. We want to talk a little bit about the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, so the Sermon on the Mount is this message that Jesus preached to his followers. And it is which the Beatitudes is the introduction to. And there's a quote by David Guzik that I'm going to read to you. There's a lot of quotes because I just did a lot of digging and a lot of research on this one, so just bear with me. But he says it in a better way than I can. He says, It has been said, if you took all the good advice for how to live ever uttered by any philosopher or psychiatrist or counselor, took out the foolishness and boiled it all down to the real essentials, you would be left 
with a poor imitation of this great message by Jesus. If we took all the wisdom this world has to offer us, we would be left with a poor imitation of this message from Jesus. Now, I'm a big believer in counseling. I'm a big believer in seeking help when you need help. I'm a believer in self-awareness. I think you should know yourself. I think you should know and understand your emotions. And hey, we're all on a journey in that. But we should be aware of how we affect the people around us. I believe we should always be students. I don't think you ever outgrow the desire to learn. Amen? And I think it's important for us to seek wisdom and experience and expertise as well. But if we turn to those people and those places before we turn to the teachings of Jesus, we are left with a poor imitation of what it looks like to follow Christ. So I'm a big fan of it, but I'm a bigger fan of this. Amen? And oftentimes we read this, but do we truly live this? And so my encouragement, or my request, if you will, is this, is can we be a people who go first to God and his word before we go to people? Like, can we truly read this and not just read it, but study it, and not just study it, but live it? Because can I tell you a secret? If every believer lived the Sermon on the Mount, there would be no need for counselors. There would be no need for self-help books. <laughs> this is the greatest teaching on Christian life that there will ever be. And see, the Beatitudes is the introduction to this famous and greatest sermon of all time. And the Sermon of the Mount, it is sometimes thought as Jesus' declaration of the kingdom. And in the same way that the American revolutionaries had the, uh, it, what am I saying? The Declaration of Independence. Clearly, I'm not American. No, I'm just kidding. I do know the Declaration of Independence. But it's a set of rules, right? It was a set of guidelines on how this nation was to be established, how it was to act. And that is what Jesus has done here. He's like, this is my declaration of the kingdom, how you are to act and interact, the rules, the guidelines, if you will, if you will of the kingdom of heaven. And so we only need to read this and look at the areas in our life that we are living according to these teachings and to see how deep our convictions run. To see if Jesus truly is Lord of our lives. This is the same sermon that teaches us to love our enemies. I mean, sometimes we have a hard enough time loving our brothers and sisters, right? It's the same message that teaches us how to pray the same message that calls us the salt of the earth, the same sermon that tells us not, not to worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. It is the same that tells us to seek first the kingdom of God. And it concludes with this, that a wise man 
would build his life upon the rock that is Jesus Christ. If you open up in your Bibles to Matthew 5.3, which is what we're going to be covering tonight, we're going to skip back to 5.2 for a moment. And before he even gets into the sermon, before Jesus even starts preaching, this is what it says. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Now, theologian William Barclay, he points out to us that this word taught is actually the imperfect tense. So what does that mean? It means this describes a repeated and habitual action. And so the translation could be, this is what he used to teach them. Why is that important? Because this wasn't a once preached and done kind of message. This was Jesus' core message, his life message, if you will. Once he had preached the gospel, once he had seen people get saved, this was his, hey, this is how you live the gospel message. And see, as an itinerant speaker, you know, when you go from place to place, you tend to have a core message, or we, we might say a life message. And you usually preach, if you haven't been there before, you usually preach the same thing in most of the new places that you go, because it is where anointing, giftings, and passion collide. It's the why are you here on earth message. And so this is Jesus's, this is why I'm here on earth message. It was his core message. And it was to teach new followers, but it was also his training tool that he would teach the disciples, that the disciples would then take out and preach and teach themselves. And so as disciples of Jesus, which is what we are, right, then wouldn't it benefit us to not only live this, but to teach this? just as Jesus asked his disciples to do. Guzik goes on to say, it is clear that the Sermon on the Mount had a significant impact on the early church. The early Christians made constant reference to it, and their lives displayed the glory of radical discipleship. Their lives displayed the glory of radical discipleship because they lived out this sermon. Look, if we approach this text once a year in our annual Bible reading plan and check it off, like that's great. But do we truly read this as a roadmap to our faith? Do we study this? Because I tell you, if we don't, there will be no danger that we would be labeled radical disciples. In other words, if you don't live this out, no one is going to call you a radical disciple of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I'm just over the mundane and the bored. I want to be a radical disciple of Jesus. I don't want to just come to church and check a box, say that I've done it, check in with him for 30 seconds a day. 
I want to be a radical disciple of Jesus. Like one of those people where people say, like, you're crazy. And I'm like, yes, I am. <laughs> and hey, I may look crazy, but I am, an, I am on a wild goose chase following the Holy Spirit. See, the Beatitudes in particular, they demonstrate the nature and the aspirations of citizens of his kingdom. What does that mean? It means you have these character traits innate within you, but they are also an aspiration to be learned, which is good news. And I think it's important to set up the foundation on which these Beatitudes were spoken and also bring context to this passage. So in short... This is not just a good sermon that you hear on a Sunday morning, that you say a couple of amens to, you walk out and your friend was like, what did the preacher speak about? And you're like, uh, I don't know, but they had this prop and it was really funny. <laughs> it's not that kind of sermon. This is not the kind of sermon that you forget. It's the kind of sermon that you live. The very roadmap and foundation of the teachings of Jesus, in which Jesus could say, if I am your Lord, this is how you should live. If you truly follow me, not just in word, but in action, these are the character traits that you will exemplify. If you truly have died and risen with me and are not too busy fighting the dead man that you once were, this is what you will look like. But you see, these beatitudes, it's not like an a la carte menu. It's not like, oh, pure in heart looks so much better than poor in spirit. I'll take a double order of that. Persecution, I'm going to leave that one. I'll hunger and thirst for righteousness, but I don't really want to show people mercy. It's not a pick and choose menu. <laughs> This is a mandatory list of character traits that Jesus is saying, if you follow me, these traits will be evident in your life. This was not a feel-good sermon. It's not a comfortable sermon. It's not a, well, if someone offends me, then I have grounds not to live this out kind of sermon. You know what all dead people have in common? They're unoffendable. Isn't that crazy? You ever thought of that? Like if we get so offended, how dead are we? I mean, it's just a thought I have. This is a you must be dead to yourself and alive to Christ kind of sermon. Okay. Now, we're going to actually talk about the beatitude that we're going to cover tonight, and it is Matthew 5.3. And in the New King James Version, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The New Living Translation, I love it, it says, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. The Amplified goes one step further and says, blessed, spiritually prosperous, happy, to be admired, 
are the poor in spirit, those devoid of spiritual arrogance. I'm just going to say that one again. Those devoid of spiritual arrogance. Those who are perhaps like, well, I've been in a revival before. I don't know if I need one again. Well, I've been to three or four revivals. I know what this should look like. Those devoid of spiritual arrogance. Those who regard themselves as insignificant, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, both now and forever. So we have previously covered in some of the other messages what this word blessed means. And so just as a really quick recap, I mean, in the simplest term possible, it means happy. Who wants to be happy? Yeah, I want to be happy. Now, I might, I just am not sure if Australians should ever try to speak Greek. No matter how many times I hit the little, you know, speaker and have the man tell me how it sounds and how I should be saying it, it just does not sound right with my accent. But anyway, I'm going to try. <laughs> this word blessed is marakaros. Marakaros, I think. And William Barclay, he says, marakaros, marakaros, then describes that joy which has its secret in itself. That joy which is serene and untouchable and self-contained. That joy which is completely independent of all the chances and changes of life. So in a nutshell, it is a joy that no circumstance or situation or person can touch. This is a little bit of a, um, a rabbit trail, but it's a cute rabbit, so we're going to follow it for a second. Proverbs 25.2 says that it is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. And I love that God doesn't hide things from us, but for us. Amen. And the Bible, when you start reading and studying the Bible, it is filled. It's like an onion, as Shrek would say. Many layers, right? Like you peel off one layer only to find there's another layer and another layer. There's symbology. There is prophecies, there's styles of writings, there's so many different layers to this that we can read it for the rest of our lives and never truly understand or uncover all of the treasure that God has for us. But I discovered this when I was studying this, which I just thought was cool. And this is the rabbit trail, it really has nothing to do with my message, but I just think it's cool. Without looking at your phone, I see you back there. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no one was looking at their phone, I'm just lighten the mood, you know? Come on, people. Don't look at your phone. Don't look at your Bibles. But can anyone tell me what the last word, not the last book, the last word of the Old Testament is? What? Curse. It's curse. You're like, Renee, why are you so happy that it's curse? Because I'm like, isn't it just like Jesus? that the first sermon he preached began with blessed. As he ushers in the new covenant, 
Isn't it just like our good God that he would take a curse and turn it into blessing? See, I don't fully understand, if I'm completely honest, the implications of what that all means. But I venture to say it is not a coincidence. Okay, so that rabbit has gone. Okay, when I read this beatitude, I have two main questions. And so this is the roadmap that we are going to take tonight. The first is, why did Jesus start this with this beatitude? Why did he start his sermon this way? And the second is, what does it actually mean to be poor in spirit? And so we're going to cover those, but first... We're going to talk about why did Jesus start with this beatitude. See, writing a sermon or building a sermon, it's really an art, if you will. And a good sermon, a great sermon, should have elements to it. It should have a flow. It should have consistency, right? It should have an element of art to the way that it is created, And see, Jesus is the master craftsman. So there was a reason that he chose this beatitude to start with, and it was not random. And I don't believe that God makes mistakes. And I believe that Jesus was very intentional with his words. He only spoke what he heard his father speak, right? So there was a purpose to not only the words that he spoke, but the way that he spoke them, the timing in which he spoke them, to the audience that he spoke them to, and to the order and to the structure of them. His messages aren't just rabbit trails. They are very intentional. And see, I believe there are two main reasons why he began with this statement. And I think one of them is a personal reason to every believer, and I, wa- I believe one of them is a cultural reason. And so we'll start with the cultural reason, and it was this, that this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, was so counterculture, not only to the audience in which it was preached, but to us, the audience today, that reads it. It is so counterculture. And Dr. D.A. Carson, he says it well. He says, it presents a radically different agenda than what the nation of Israel expected from the Messiah. It does not present the political or material blessings of the Messiah's reign. Instead, it expresses the spiritual implications of the rule of Jesus in our lives. This great message tells us how we will live when Jesus is our Lord. And in the first century, there was little agreement among the Jews as to what the messianic kingdom would look like. One very popular assumption was that the Roman yoke would be shattered and there would be political peace and mounting prosperity. Did you catch that last part? Mounting prosperity. So that's what a lot of Jewish people thought it would look like when the Messiah came that there would be mounting prosperity. And so here comes this Jesus man, 
And he's like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Not the prosperous, the poor in spirit. It was completely counterculture to his audience. Everything about Jesus and his teachings went against this heroic figure that they esteemed the Messiah to look like. And Jesus in this first verse starts with this language, being poor in spirit, that automatically insults and denounces people's expectations of what the the reigning Messiah and his kingdom would look like. I think Jesus was a little bit offensive. Like, so I feel like we're, you know, kindred spirits, if you will. (laughs) John Stott, a famous theologian, says, Jesus contradicted all human judgments and nationalistic expectations of the kingdom of God. The kingdom is given to the poor, not the rich. The kingdom is given to the feeble, not the mighty. To little children humble enough to accept it, not soldiers who boast that they can obtain it with their own prowess. Is anyone a gardener in the room? You can be proud, just put your hands up. I'm an, I'm an aspiring gardener. I, um, you know, I often say the, the tagline of my life, if you will, is how hard can that be? And I love it, because it turns out sometimes it's not actually that hard. And you can get a lot of stuff done. Thank you, YouTube. But (laughs) turns out there's a lot of things that are a lot harder than they seem. And for me, gardening was one of it, those things. I started about a year and a half ago. And my mom is a gardener, like gardener. She's retired, but I'm pretty sure it takes up the same amount of hours as a full-time job. Like, she enters roses into competitions. Like, that, that kind of gardener. So I'm like, I'm like genetically blessed to be a gardener, right? <laughs> Not quite. My garden last year was an absolute disaster. I might have got three baby tomatoes. I, I, oh, I got a couple of chili peppers. That is it. That's it. I'm, I'm trying again. And so my new system this year is like, I'm just going to master one vegetable. So y'all, I'm going to have tomatoes out in the lobby like all summer long because I have about 15 tomato plants right now. <laughs> Nothing else. We've got a lot of salsa in our future. <laughs> but I'm going to master tomatoes. Anyway, you're like, Renee, where is this going? <laughs> tomatoes. I'm so proud of my children when they say tomatoes. I'm like, thank you, Jesus, for your kindness. Um, (laughs) But gardening is a lot harder than it looks. And what I discovered is that 80%-ish success of what determines your success as a gardener is the soil. The soil. Who knew? Isn't it just dirt? Put the dirt in. Put a plan in. Not quite. I mean, there's so much involved when I started getting into this, and I follow some, like, gardeners on Instagram, and I'm like, oh, I'm like a 
gardener groupie, like a little bit. I'm like, ooh, what soil did you use? But they're telling me all these things that I need to add to my soil in order to make it like the best soil that vegetables can grow in. And so I'm getting an ed education in soil. Again, Renee, what's this got to do with your message? But this beatitude, if you will, is the soil in which all other beatitudes can be obtained. If you cannot be poor in spirit, then you can't be pure in heart. If you cannot be poor in spirit, then you cannot be merciful. And I'm going to get to why in just a second. But just so we know, without this one, all the others don't come along. And by chance, if one of them did, if we didn't have this one solidified in our life, chances are we think that the fruit of that one was by our own works. And because we deserved it. If we don't understand what it's like and what it is to be poor in spirit. On a personal level, why is this first? And the reason that this beatitude is at the beginning is quite simply this. It is where we all start. It's where we all start. Charles Spurgeon says, everyone can start here. It isn't first blessed are the pure or the holy or the spiritual or the wonderful. But everybody can be poor in spirit. Because it is not what I have, but what I have not. It is the first point of contact between my soul and God. It is the first point of contact between my soul and God. So there's a reason why this is first. And it puts all the other ones into perspective. They cannot be fulfilled by one's own strength. No one mourns until they are poor in spirit. No one is meek towards others until he has a humble view of himself. If you don't sense your own need, you will never hunger and thirst for righteousness. And if you have too high a view of yourself, you will find it difficult to be merciful to others. So this beatitude is first because not only does it set the stage for the rest of the Beatitudes, but the entire Sermon on the Mount. In order to grasp this sermon, we have to realize that we need a Savior. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? We must first remember that this teaching, Jesus wasn't teaching this Sermon on the Mount to a bunch of people who didn't know him. It was to his followers. It was to people who believed in Jesus. What does that mean for you and I? It means you never graduate from this. It is not only where you start, but it is where you live. Theologian Watson says, how poor are they that think themselves rich? How rich are they that think themselves to be poor? 
I call it the jewel of poverty. There be some paradoxes in religion which the world cannot understand. For a man to become a fool that he may be wise, to save his life by losing it, and to be made rich by being poor. Yet this poverty is to be striven for more than riches. Under these rags is hid cloth of gold, and out of this carcass cometh honey. This isn't a popular view to be poor in spirit. And see, the greatest hindrance of living a life that is poor in spirit is pride. Being poor in spirit means we recognize and accept that without the redemption of Jesus, we have nothing. We are spiritually bankrupt. The word poor in this verse means patakos. It means reduced to beggary, begging, destitute of wealth. And I think those ones are more of the obvious ones, but it also means destitute of position, destitute of influence, destitute of honor, poor and needy. See, we must first grasp We must first grasp our own lack before we can grasp his abundance. We have to. He can't fill us until we're emptied. And really what this boils down to is the poor in spirit is the ultimate expression of humility. James 4, 6 tells us, but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. In 2 Chronicles 7, 14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. And I spoke about this last week. Turn from their wicked ways means to repent. But you cannot repent without humility. You can't. And last week I spoke about the things that revival history has in common. And it is the key ingredient was repentance. So we want revival, yes? I do. Then it is not only going to take repentance, but it is going to take deep humility. We've got to get out of ourselves, admit that we don't have it all together, that we don't know all the answers. I love Jack Taylor. He passed away last year, but he was, I forget how old he was the last time we heard him speak, but he was in his 90s, famous, and he would write, he wrote so many books, and he would say, the older I get, the less I know. And I'm like, oh gosh, let that be me. I never want to grow into an expert. I want to grow into a child. We also see Jesus rebuke those believers in Revelation 3.17 who live opposite to being poor in spirit. And he says, because you say, I am rich, 
have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. See, the church at Laodicea lacked a sense of spiritual poverty. They looked at their spiritual condition and said, rich. And they looked again and said, wealthy. They looked again and said, we need nothing. And this is the church that Jesus labeled the lukewarm church. They were the opposite of poor in spirit. The cause of Christ has been hurt more by Sunday morning bench warmers who pretend to love Christ, who call him Lord, but do not his commands. They have hurt more than all the publicans and sinners combined. Here is one of the things that I think hinders us becoming poor in spirit, and it is a spirit of entitlement. It is prevalent in our culture, this spirit of entitlement. God gives us good gifts because he is a good father. But we better make no mistake in thinking that it was our works that got those gifts. Or that it was because we deserved those gifts. And this should lead us to a lifestyle of repentance, humbling ourselves before God. I know this is kind of like a heavy topic. But it'll bring us closer to Jesus than anything else will, is recognizing our need for him. See, the tension of the kingdom is that we are sinners saved by grace, right? We're now saints. That we are sons and daughters, a royal priesthood, who are also nothing without the grace of God. And it is this tension and I'm not going to get into it too much, but I was like talking to Joaquin about it. And I'm like, I remember when I was at Bible school, Bible college, and I just, um, I liked to debate. I don't know why. I'm kind of competitive. I just like a good, you know, let's get in there with our words kind of deal. And so one of the things that my friends and I would talk about was the theology of total depravity and what that looked like in the Calvinist church and the Armenian church. And, you know, it is this belief that everything is evil, that man at his core is evil. You know, and there is this tension between free will, that we can't do anything apart from God. And it's this, it's this tension that we have to live in, to know that we are saints, but to know that we are in need of a savior. And we cannot have one without the other. Because we become spiritually arrogant if we only think we are saints. But if we only think that we are sinners.
I feel like that could be a whole message, but I'm not going to chase that rabbit. I'm going to finish by saying just a couple of things. In Philippians 3.3, 3, it says, For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Yet we are a royal priesthood. <laughs> Attention of the kingdom. It has been something that has derailed many believers. This inability to hold mystery. We want it black and white, don't we? We want to know it all. The worst part is, is sometimes we think we know it all. <laughs> There's a side note here that if you want a book recommendation, I highly recommend. There is a book called The Entitlement Cure by Dr. John Townsend that you can read. But he says that you can boil the spirit of entitlement down to two basic attitudes. One, I am exempt from responsibility. What does that look like? I'm exempt from serving at church because I tithe. I am not responsible for the failures in my life. I wasn't set up for success. I am not responsible for how I impact you. I'm not responsible for how my words or actions affect you. Now we cannot control how our words affect someone, but we are responsible for the words that we speak. If you get your feelings hurt, then that's just your problem, not mine. A total disregard from responsibility. The second attitude is this. I am owed special treatment. I have to be honest, when we were traveling a lot, we got status on United. It was so good. <laughs> we got to jump the line. We got special seats, we got special meals, we got priority check-in. It was great. And then we stopped traveling. And we planted a church. And I'm like, hey, where, where are all the perks? United, don't you know how many miles we've flown with you? You owe me. <laughs> we expect special treatment. And I know that's a funny, maybe, analogy. But in our everyday life, it may look a little bit like someone, and we often put God in this category, he owes me something. He owes me a blessing, right? Because I tithed. He owes me an easy life because I come to church every Sunday. And I even told my coworker the other day, God bless you. But let us make it clear, God owes us nothing, period. It is a gift that we get good health. The blessings that we have in our lives, they are gifts. Not an obligation from God because he owes you something.
And see, the quicker we realize that God owes us nothing, the freer we will become. I didn't say the easier it will become. (laughs) But I did say the freer we will become. And the Bible says in Romans 12.3, do not think yourself more highly than you are. When we first moved to Austin, this is a safe place, right? I'm going into confession mode. Yeah? Okay. I'll just pretend you all nodded and said yes. When we first got to Austin, I'm just going to be super honest. It was so hard. It's like there was something opposing us or something from being here. Right. That was meant to be funny, but that's okay. Um, (laughs) But we felt this opposition come against us. We definitely felt the attack of taking new ground. In every which way you can imagine, on our family, on our wider church family. I mean, I could list thing after thing after thing. Emergency room car accident, like all of it. I could just list it. And I kind of got into this way of thinking. And I don't know if you've ever been in this way, but I was like, God, this isn't fair. This isn't fair. Don't you remember you told us to come to Austin? You told us to plant a church. You owe us easy. (laughs) We're doing your work. We're doing the call of God on our life. Don't we deserve it to be easy? That's how I used to think. I know, I know. But now this is my narrative. This is still the hardest job I've ever done and probably ever will. But... I am so thankful that I get to do this because there is nothing else that I would want to do with my life. Even if that life came with easy, I still wouldn't choose it. We've got to get out of this microwave culture. Like we want to microwave our way through hard things. But unfortunately, hard things are going to come. There's no way around it. But it's how we go through it that matters. And if we think we're entitled to not go through it, for whatever reason. I actually believe that there are some who are deconstructing their faith out of disappointment that God didn't give them special treatment. They maybe became jaded or offended because they thought God owed them something. And perhaps it isn't fully realized. Perhaps someone close to them died of cancer. They're like, God, but I cried out. I had faith for them to be healed. You owe me. And maybe they wouldn't use those words out loud. But don't sometimes when we go through trials and tribulations and we've fasted and we've prayed and we still don't see breakthrough. We're like, God, you owe me. Why? I don't deserve this. 
What is the spirit of entitlement that can creep on us? One of the antidotes to the entitlement spirit is thankfulness. See, it's really hard to complain when we're giving thanks. We become more aware of all of the blessings that we have and less aware of what we don't have. Living a life of thankfulness will help to create within us this beatitude. When we are poor in spirit and cry out our thankfulness for our salvation, we put ourselves in the posture of humility and we create the garden bed in which all of the other beatitudes can grow in our lives. We have a great need for a savior. But the greatest news of all is that we have one. But let's just not forget what got us to where we are. And not think that it was because of anything that we did. But remain poor in spirit. Knowing that it was the goodness of God that led us to repentance. And not our own free will. I want to see God move in this generation. I want to see him move in this city. But it is going to take believers being poor in spirit and crying out to God in order to see him come. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit BethelATX.com.